So, uh, we have been reading through the book of 2 Peter over the last five weeks. Hope you have been enjoying it, wrestling with it as you kind of made your way through. It is at times not easy, it at times throws up themes that you're thinking, goodness, right, well, that's pretty straight. It's kind of one of those books, right? Peter doesn't hold back as he writes the last piece of work that we have accredited to him in the Bible. And as we come to the end of that journey today, we're going to be reading from uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, verses 14 to 18. It's the last section in the whole book. Why don't you, uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you get your Bible out? Um, Alternatively, the words will appear behind me. So it's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. Let's read God's Word together. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So we've been working our way through this book over the last five weeks, and uh, I hear back from our communities that you're loving it, that you're really getting loads from it, you're being really challenged by it, and that it's certainly stirring conversation, which is great, because as the person that's been kind of prepping the stuff over the last five weeks, it's not an easy book to prep on, right? The themes, whenever you open, I, I try to read on a Monday, kind of after Sunday, and when you're kind of finished with Sunday, you open up on a Monday, and you're like, oh goodness, more stuff on like false teachers, and judgment, and difficult stuff, right? It's a trick book. And as we get to the end of the book, it's kind of an important section that we're reading today. It's the last week. And that means that Peter is doing something kind of quite specific in this last little block of text. As I read it on Monday, it reminds me of what was always one of my least favorite things when I was growing up, school reports, right? School report time was one of my least favorite experiences. See, generally speaking at school, I was academically quite right? I was okay. So I didn't really worry about results. That wasn't something that I was too concerned about, right? Because at the end of the day, a result comes out. You either have a good result or you've got a bad result. That's fine. You kind of deal with it. You make excuses to your parents. You do all that sort of stuff, right? And generally speaking, my, my grades were okay. My behavior, however, in school wasn't particularly okay. Uh, I mean, I wasn't bad, really. I wasn't one of those kids that was just like doing bad things, but I wasn't awfully good either, right? I just was one of those kids that was uh, uh, kind of the phrase was, you're always up to no good, right? Not bad, but just up to no good. So when it came around to reports, the bit that I dreaded most was the comments section at the bottom. You know that little like box where the, your kind of form teacher or your teacher gets to write, write the things that were really going on. So the summary, right, of some of my comments on my reports through the years. Throughout the years, here we go, right? David consistently talks too much in class where you kind of knew that was coming, right? This next one, David's suspension from school for one week following his bleaching his hair was an unfortunate inc- incident this year. Yeah, sun in. We all went there, right? Slightly lemon-colored hair, right? Uh, an incident involving David and other boys building a form of barricade outside a history teacher's office in order to block him in. 
And this was my personal favorite. Unfortunately, on one occasion, David lured a dog into his French class and proceeded to encourage the dog to eat another pupil's lunch. <laughs> it's all true, right? That literally did happen, right? The summary was always bad, right? I dreaded the summary because the summary was the opportunity for them to say what was really going on, right? Because when you look down grades, grades are one thing. But what was really going on, right? Are you a well-rounded human being? I mean, essentially, that's what they're trying to do in school. They're trying to make you into a well-rounded human being. And my report repeatedly told my mom and dad that I was not, in fact, a well-rounded human being, right? That's what it said again and again and again. However, if you thought mine was bad, okay, this one is an absolute cracker, right? The Daily Mirror has branded this person's report the worst report ever, okay? Don't get your phones out and start looking now, but you should read it later, okay? I will know, by the way, if in about 20 minutes' time, when you started to get bored of me speaking, you'll start pulling your phones out and smirking that you've went to the worst report ever. So a summary, I'll give you it, right? Here we go. Here's how it starts. It starts out fairly standard. Such and such did not bring her book to the lesson and tried to be funny when stating my goldfish ate it. As a result, she doesn't have her assessment. Okay, it's fairly standard stuff, right? But now it starts to go from bad to worse. 12 12 minutes late for a lesson with no apology and offered no explanation. Seen in corridor moving wet floor signs because she thought it would be funny to see someone slip rather than come to lesson. Next, threw a rubber at a student on the other side of the room, then blamed it on someone else when I clearly saw her. She decided to answer me back saying, you should go to Specsavers fam. It's classy, right? Good girl. It keeps going, right? You think, it's, you think that's bad? It keeps going. Came into class with a sombrero hat on that she took from art and said she was the undertaker for 40 minutes, right? And then, best of all, got banned from Asda Car Park for tying a fellow student to a pole for one hour and leaving her there for all the cars to come past and see. This kid is like some sort of terrorist, right? Her report is fairly grim reading. The thing is, those school reports have got a habit of doing this with people. Stephen has glaring faults, and they have certainly glared at him this term. Stephen Fry is a constant trouble to everybody and is always in some scrape or another. He cannot be trusted to behave himself anywhere. That was Winston Churchill's. Certainly on the road to failure, hopeless, rather a clown in class, wasting other people's time. That was John Lennon's. He will either go to prison or become a millionaire. Well, that was Richard Branson's. And best of them all was, he will never amount to anything. Albert Einstein. See, here's the thing. It's possible to hide behind results. It's possible to hide behind grades and achievements, sporting teams that you were part of, performances that you did, but the comments section, the summary of all that, uh, that was going on at that time, it gives a clear picture, doesn't it? It tells you what was really going on. And I say that because this last little section in 2 Peter 3 is almost like the comments section, right? It's the summary at the end of the letter. Peter was signing off, okay? This would be the last written thing that we have from Peter. Uh, and as he does it, he takes one final opportunity to dig into the mega themes, right? The final kind of whip round, the big things that are really going on in the letter. He takes the opportunity to do it at the end. It's the summary. It's the story of what was really going on. In his eyes, in that moment, what's really going on? 
And to do that, Peter starts by reminding us of something which is critically important for how we see the world. It's this in verse 14, okay? So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. You see, this appears to be one of Peter's favorite phrases, okay? Make every effort, right? You find it several times in this book. You find it three times alone in chapter 1, verses 1, 5, 1, 10, 1, 15. And here it is again, make every effort, So why is that important? It's important because this is the part where a wrong view of what God intends to do in the end will really damage us and our vision and hope for the world. A wrong view of the end, which Peter's been talking about a lot throughout the letter, right? A wrong view of the end will really damage how you view the world, your place in it, and what's going to become of the world in the end. So if you believe that in the end, God just intends to come back and burn up everything in this world and return our souls, you know, to eternity, then what difference does our action right now make, right? If in the end, this is all just fuel for the fire, it's just getting burned up, then what difference does it make what we do now, right? It's, it's all just burnt up anyway. I mean, if it's all going to be torched, what possible difference can our lives make now? If you believe that about the end, that's how you live your life. And that's what Peter's trying to say. If you just believe that the end, like God's going to come burn it all up, then you can just do what you want now. It doesn't really matter in the end of the day anyway, right? That's what he's saying. Why not just wait, do nothing, enjoy our lives as we has them? But that's not what God intends to do, is it? prophet Isaiah pointed to it all those years before in Isaiah 65 and he said, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And then he says something similar again in Isaiah 66. And then right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, which you've looked at a number of times, it said, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You see, what we believe about the end matters massively about how we live our lives now. God intends not just to burn the world up, but to make it all new. And this has profound implications for what we think we're here for, what we do, how we live. It matters, right? It matters. He's coming to make it new, not just torch the place. So therefore, our lives matters. It matters because God's patience is our opportunity. That's what we were looking at last week. God said he's patient. He's slow to come, slow to pass judgment. And that patience is our opportunity, our opportunity to work on our lives, to develop holiness and godliness. That's what we kind of signed off with last week, right? And it matters because it creates the conditions for opportunity to partner with God in his renewing of this world. What we believe about the end matters. Peter's saying as he signs off, what you believe about the end, it matters for what you do with your life now. It's God's intention to make all things new. It's our adventure to be part of it. What we believe about the end matters. Peter wants to remind us of that just as he's getting started with the sign-off. He's setting the scene for his summary. And there have been two big features that have kind of cropped up throughout the book, and he reminds us of them right at the very end, okay? And they're what he leans on, right? He encourages to live a certain way in that time and space where it matters how we live. And the two ways that he says that we should live are to live guarded and to live growing. We should be guarded and we should be growing until he comes. The first one is that we should live guarded. This is what it says in verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. 
you've been following along with us in this book, you'll know that being guarded is something that Peter takes very seriously. He's spoken about it lots. In fact, he spent the whole of chapter two talking about the danger of false teachers and their impact on our lives and how we need to live to, to make sure that we don't get led astray by them, right? Instead, we should be secure is what he says at the end of the verse. This is the same word Peter's been using again and again, okay? It's not, this is not the first time Peter uses it a lot. The word is this, it's sterigmos, okay? And that's the word in Greek. It's the same theme that's spoken over his life by Jesus at the end, right? That he might strengthen God's people. It means strengthen, steadfast, firmness, secure, stable. Those are all the words that this kind of one word points to. That in the end, you should be like this. You should be sterigmos. You should be secure, stable, strengthened, steadfast. And this is an interesting word, right? Because you'd think that being carried away is a dramatic term, wouldn't you? If someone said, oh, I got carried away with it, it's quite a dramatic term. I was reading this week uh, on the BBC News uh, website that the Coast Guard were putting out big warnings in the face of Storm Dennis, okay, for people who were like taking Instagram stories at waves crashing over the rocks as they were like running away, you know, like, so there's like a hundred mile an hour winds and these clever people were deciding that this was the moment that they were going to like video themselves running from huge waves, which was resulting in quite a few people ending up in the ocean and needing to be rescued in the middle of a storm, which isn't the world's wisest idea. But when you think about the term carried away, that's what you think, don't you? Wave crashing over the rocks, carrying you away into the ocean. That's what certainly the imagery is is what it would make you think of. And that's what it conjures up, being carried away into danger. But actually, it's much more subtle than that. It's much more subtle than that. See, in verse 16, Peter uses the word unstable people. The Greek is asterictoi, okay? It's this word. And it's better thought of not necessarily as unstable. It's better thought of as inconsistent. It's more like being carried away by inconsistent people. In other words, be careful, be guarded in this life that we don't get carried away and become an inconsistent person. And now it sounds way more like the sort of thing that we all do, don't we? You see, when we think about being carried away, it feels like this dramatic being like washed out of your Christian faith into all of a sudden a life full of all sorts of other stuff that, um, you know, 10 years ago you never thought you'd be doing. But that's not actually really what we're getting at here. It's much more subtle. Be careful that you don't get carried away or you might become an inconsistent person. You see, false teachers are so attractive in our world, as we pointed to the other week, because they're everywhere, aren't they? They're in your pocket right now. They'll be in your Insta stories later. They seem so attractive because very often we've chosen to follow them. We've chosen to give them permission to speak into our lives. And we love it because they say the sorts of things that we want to hear, don't we? We gobble it up because they say the sorts of things that we like to hear. And the Bible talks about them as repulsive, right? It uses, you know, that phrase that you often hear kind of people preaching on street corners with, you know, the dog returns to its vomit, right? That's kind of one of the old school Turner Burn type phrases, right? And the Bible refers to false teaching as repulsive, but the truth is that most of the time we're drawn to it and we give ourselves to it, don't we? We let it in. And the end result? we become just as inconsistent, just as unstable as the teaching we're absorbing. Peter says, until he comes, be guarded. Be guarded that you don't become an inconsistent person. 
And all of a sudden, right, it's like one of those kind of strange things where you get like a family photo and you're kind of looking around and you're like, and this is this, and this is this person, this is this. And then it's like, you know, this odd person in the corner of the photo. You're like, who the heck is that? And you're like, oh, that's your Uncle Stephen, right? You know, your uncle, right? He's not actually your uncle, but we call him your Uncle Stephen. And somehow he's made it into the family photo. Well, this kind of passage, all of a sudden, Paul just like appears from nowhere in the passage. You're like, where did that come from? Well, he, he talks about Paul's teaching too, okay? And this is what he says. Paul, he writes the same way in all his letters. By the way, the same way, that's the opposite to inconsistent, right? He writes consistently as opposed to inconsistently. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable. There's that word. People distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. First thing, isn't it refreshing that Peter, the rock, finds some of the things that Paul has to say hard to understand as well? Isn't it like a comfort that he's saying, that Paul writes some things and they're hard to understand, let alone live, right? You've got Peter, the rock, okay? He's walked literally alongside Jesus and he's saying some of the things Paul has to say, they're hard going. I love that. I'm thankful that that's in the Bible. Anyway, second, he's saying, look, Paul says the same things. Be guarded. Make sure we don't become inconsistent people because we have a way to live until he comes. And the thing is, right, this living in light of Jesus' return, living looking forward, as we called it the other week, it shows up in all of Paul's letters, every single one of them, right? I could start giving you verses, but the point is, it's in everything Paul wrote, living in light of the future that's coming. He writes it in everything. And Paul's warnings are the same. Be guarded. Be guarded. And here's the danger. Being inconsistent by twisting God's word. You see, there's a massive difference between finding the Bible difficult and willfully twisting it to say what we want to say. There's a difference between difficult and distorted. And an inconsistency, we become the sorts of people that begin to distort it, that begin to twist it, to say what we want to say, that begin to leave things out and just put the odd word in just so that the Bible begins to say what we want it to say. There's a difference between the Bible being difficult and hard to understand and the Bible being distorted. The primary way we become inconsistent is by believing what we want to believe. About God, about the world, about ourselves, about our lives, about our future, rather than believing what God has to say about it. Dick Lucas, who's a New Testament scholar, he writes this, where is the voice of God if he says only what we want him to say? And there's the danger. And that's what we need to be guarded of. Our world is an inconsistent world. Just about all of the voices out there in our, you know, in our pockets, on our phones, in our Twitter feeds that we listen to, that we absorb. They are inconsistent voices. We talk about equality and freedom of speech just so long as it's an opinion that I agree with. The same people who often beat the drum of pro-choice, pro-abortion often are arguing for bettering the treatment of animals. I mean, those two things, how do those two things coexist? And lots of people who argue for pro-life still stand in favor of the death penalty and very open gun laws. Go figure. Go figure. Inconsistency is everywhere. And yet we are meant to stand apart, secure, stable, steadfast in what God has to say about us above every tide of what the world or even what we have to say about ourselves over us. We are to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. Until he comes, we are to live guarded. 
That's the first thing Peter says in the summary of the book and the sign-off of the things that he wants you to remember. Live guarded. Don't become an inconsistent person. And the second thing he says is that we should be growing. We should be guarded and we should be growing. This is what Peter writes in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow. Healthy things grow, right? That's not that hard to understand. Anything that you have that's healthy, it should be growing. Living things grow. And our relationship with Jesus, our formation, it also has an obligation to grow. That's what Peter is saying. Life until he comes is marked off by the patience of God and a time to grow. And this seems obvious, right, whenever we say it. But it's maybe not the position we come at this from. I know lots of us have grown up in the evangelical church in one way or another. And if you have, I have absolutely no doubt that in that time you heard lots about being saved, right? If you grew up like I did, there was always lots about being saved, how you get saved, getting people saved. Lots of people remember the day and the time and the date and the hour, right? Lots of people do that because we talk lots about it. But here's the thing. You probably heard loads about being saved and very little about growing. Loads about being saved and little about growing. And we believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus, right? That's a central doctrinal statement. It's Jesus' work that saves us, right? We could all look around and agree on that. Well, at least I hope we could all look around and agree on that or something very wrong is going on, right? But that's a big doctrinal statement that we all agree on. But so easily you can do nothing to be saved extends to you can do nothing to have spiritual growth. And that's... The danger. Dallas Willard writes this, we are not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. That this reality that we don't do anything, right? It's Jesus' work in our lives. So, you know, our growth, well, that's just still him. I don't have to do anything to keep growing. He saved me so he can grow me, right? That's Jesus' work. That's not mine. I've got nothing to do in the meantime. Just relax, take it easy. Jesus is growing me, right? There's that thing that is in lots of people, And so most of us have experienced in our life that growth happens by one of two things, okay? The first one is this, inspiration, right? We feel that growth happens just by inspiration. We're longing for a God moment, right? If God would do this, then I would do that, right? That kind of thing that happens in our lives. I just need God to do a miracle. I just need God to speak to me. I just need this or that to happen. And then I would be more like this, that, or the other, right? We feel we need inspiration. And so we long for it, right? I meet people all the time and they're just longing for the God moment in their life as if it would change all of their life. And sure, it does change our lives sometimes. For some people, we have these like pivotal God moments and the rest of your life changes from there, right? But the reality is if you've ever met people like that, the God moment is the catalyst for them to invest in their own spiritual formation, right? We believe that we're waiting on inspiration. Second, information. We just believe if we could get enough inspiration and get enough information, then we would grow in our spiritual life, right? If I just got this sort of teaching, just read enough books, right? Take a good Instagram picture of all of your books piled up in front of you, right? Read this, eight this year. Look how much I'm growing, right? It's like information means you'll grow in your faith. If I just knew more, if I just understood more, if I just absorbed more, then I would grow in my faith. You know what? God moments, inspiration, they don't usually help to grow us. Lots of you know that because lots of you have experienced moments where God did amazing things in your life, where he spoke tangibly, 
where you prayed for someone and something happened or somebody prayed for you and something happened, you knew it was him. You showed up miraculously in your resources or in moments in your life and yet several weeks later, there you are living the same way that you were before. I mean, just look at the Old Testament story of God's people, right? Look at how many astonishing things God does again and again and again and again in the history of the people of Israel. And look how many times they so astonishingly decide to walk in another way again and again and again and again. Similarly, all the information in the world won't grow you. But discipline and activity will. Discipline plus activity are far greater than inspiration plus information. Discipline and activity, disciplining ourselves to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to take part in the activity of Jesus. That is how we grow in our lives. That's where the growth is. As I said a number of weeks back, if you want the life of Jesus, then you need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The only way we get that sort of growth in our life is if we start to develop discipline and take part in the activity of Jesus in our lives. It's not going to come in a God moment. You're not all of a sudden going to be spiritually mature if Jesus shows up today and speaks to you. Nor is it going to happen if you just come here every week and absorb stacks of information. If you read the entire Christian back catalog of books, you will not necessarily be growing in your Christian faith. It's discipline and activity. You know, the word grow in this particular phrase is a present imperative in the Greek, which means keep on growing, never stop. It's the same tense that whenever we read in the Bible, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not just a one-time thing, right? It's keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same here, keep growing, keep growing, never stop, never stop, never stop. I was reading in the last week um, a book, (laughs) as you do, Uh, not growing in my faith by reading the book. Anyway, I was reading in the last week, I was reading about uh, Leslie Newbegin, who um, uh, was, um, he was part of the Church of Scotland, and then he he came into the Church of England. He ended up as a missionary going to serve in India. He served most of his uh, time as a a leader in the church in India as a missionary, and he was an incredibly kind of impactful ministry out in India. Then he returned home after spending 30 years there. He comes back and he then returns to England to, to come back to where he lived. And as he comes back, he realizes that England has changed so much in the 30 years that he has been away. Okay, it's, it's gone from basically a Christian context where everybody went to church and all the rest. And then he comes back and he realizes nobody goes to church anymore. And he realizes actually that it's more important that he should, should kind of work as a leader in the church, as a missionary, in the same way that he did in India. So he just starts adopting all of the same principles that he adopted to reach people in India in England. And he finds that that's more fruitful. In other words, he becomes a mis- like a missionary in his own context. He was an incredibly prophetic writer. His books were way, way, way ahead of their time. A whole network for- formed kind of off the back of his writing. Uh, and it's got a real voice in the here and now uh, uh, book like um, Foolishness for Greeks, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He's written a number of incredible books, incredibly uh, prophetic and provocative writer that was way, way, way ahead of his time. Here's the thing. The most important works that he created in his life, okay, the most important things, the things now that are echoing through our culture that people are picking up and they're changing leaders, changing ministry now, those works that he wrote, he wrote when he was over 65, 
and he was blind. Never stop growing. The hunger never went away for Leslie Newbegin. The hunger to grow and read. Alan Roxburgh in his book where he, he talks about Leslie Newbegin says that every day somebody came into his room, a friend or somebody in the ministry would come and they would read him, uh, they would read him really complicated works of philosophy and things like church history and then he would begin to recite what would then be the books that we now read. And he wrote them after he was 65. If you think God is done with you and you're growing, he's not. It's a present imperative. Never stop growing in your faith. Never. And it's a bit like our bodies, right? I don't know about you, but the last time I got out of the shower and walked past a mirror, I didn't look at myself and think, I have achieved perfection, right? I know you're surprised to believe that. But I didn't walk past and go, yep, I've got there, right? They didn't believe it, right? Maybe you did. I don't know. Prayer ministry is available if that's what you thought the last time you walked past a mirror. But I believe, right, that my body, my health, we all believe that. We believe it's a gift from God, don't we? We believe that what we have is a gift, right? This body, this one that we have, it is a gift from God, okay? And, and that's why he writes, Peter writes a little bit before about your salvation as a gift because most people will say, well, you know, my salvation is a gift. Well, what more can I do? I can't do anything about that. God gives it to me and I receive the gift. Your body is a gift, right? But you don't look at your body and think it's per- complete. It's perfect. There's nothing I can do. So I can just eat junk for the rest of my life, never run again, never do things that might actually make my body healthier. Never do things that might actually work on the gift that I have been given. But you do, don't you? We all do. We all try to eat the right, well, I hope so, eat the right things and exercise a little bit and look after the good gift that we have been given in the form of the bodies that we have. In our lives, everything will try to push Jesus to the back of your minds. Growing in your faith looks like doing all we can to bring him to the front. Because that's where the battle is every day, isn't it? That's where the battle is. Any of you that do run or cycle or train or anything like that will know that the battle is not whenever you actually get out on the road. It's to get out the front door, isn't it? It's the voices that begin, nah, don't worry about it, just sit down. Oh, there's Doritos in the cupboard. You know, it's that voice, isn't it? It's raining out there. It's not worth it. You're a bit tired today. The battle is to get it to the front of your mind when everything else tries to push it to the back. That's what growth looks like. And we do that by discipline and by activity. How will it look whenever we get there? Well, Scott McKnight, um, who's written a whole bunch of great books, uh, he's a New Testament scholar, he wrote a really helpful bit of work trying to provoke thought in terms of what our spiritual growth looks like. And he suggests that we move through different levels, okay? He said that as you grow in your faith, you'll kind of come through these different levels, which will appear behind me now, okay? And there's kind of six different levels. This is what growth looks like according to McKnight, okay? The first is I, right? In my mind, there's just me. It's just me. I'm the center of the world, or at least I act that way. My life is shaped by my own consumption, right? That's level one. That's, that's kind of the starting point. It's just me, right? If you've ever been around a toddler, you'll know that kids, whenever they're born, they're not fundamentally born with like generosity in their spirit, right? They are born with the belief that they're the center of the world and teaching them about the world around us is part of how they grow. There's I. And then you step into the next level, which is I and God, right? And I'm still 
uh, self-absorbed, but now I'm aware of God, okay? I'm aware that he's out there somewhere, but I'm here, okay? In some ways, there is room for God, but also God isn't given any room, right? That's the reality about level two. And then you move on into level three, which is God and I, and now I'm starting to give way to God in my life. There's a real God, and he's the creator and sustainer of all things. I know he's worthy of worship, and it feels like responsibility, but I don't really know him. And that's the third level as you grow. And then there's God in me. Now I've got a personal relationship with God. God is for me. God supports my ambitions. He's seen as serving me. It's where places like health and wealth gospel said, I've got a personal relationship, but it's not a right relationship. And then you go to I and God, and now God is beginning to change your heart. And he's shaping my life so that it's not so much anymore about God as at work to bring about my ambitions that I'm now in this world to bring about God's ambitions. And then finally, it's we in God in Christ through the Spirit. Now the I becomes we. It's not just me anymore. It becomes we, us, the body of Christ. Now we are being wired to glorify God in Christ through the power of the Spirit. McKnight says that this is what growth looks like. If that's growth, where are you? Being honest with yourself today, if that's what growth looks like, where are you? I realize too for some people that I'm still spiritualizing it so much. So here's, here's a little bit simpler list. If you're growing, you should be less angry. You should be less lustful. You should be more honest. You should be more generous. You should be less in control. If that's growing, where are you? How are you doing with that? Because here's the other thing. You'll never grow as far as you can on your own. You will never, ever grow as far as you can on your own. Growth happens best in family. We spent a while working through the fivefold ministry in a series called Symphony a little while ago, and I made fun of a lot of the Enneagram-loving people in this room, right? And I know there's a lot, right? It's a room full of millennials, so it's like, you know, the gospel and then Enneagram, right? That's kind of how it works. Some of you are laughing because it's literally true, right? And I was kind of picking fun all the way through about personality tests. I love personality tests and all of that, right? So I'm picking fun at it because I do genuinely, I think they're great, informative and all of that stuff, right? But I've done most of them and most of them I did on my own, okay? Lots of you have done that too. You went online, you did the test and it put the results out the other end and you read it and you went, oh, that's interesting, right? And maybe some of you were like, wow, it is reading my meal. This thing literally knows everything about me, okay? Others of you were like, well, I don't really get it. Fine, whatever, right? And so I kind of had that experience myself as I walked through through lots of the personality tests that I had done. But the one that I found most helpful in my life was not actually about the test itself. It was the fact that I did strengths in a team exercise, that somebody had prepared to do it with a whole group of people that I was working with at that time. And then it got even more profoundly important as we then did that strengths exercise with lots of our closest friends. We really, like, that was a really, you know, exciting Friday night in our house. Anyway, we sat down and did strengths together. We did the test. We talked about it. We, like, wrestled with it with one another. We laughed at it because people were like, I find this really valuable. And someone was like, you are pathetic, blah, 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 right? It was really good. It was an incredible experience with each other. And it was most important because we did it with our closest friends, watching us wrestle, laugh, cry about the way we were made and the way that we were wired. It was the most profoundly impactful way that I have ever done a personality test. Why? Because we grow best in family. 
because other people see us for who we really are, because other people speak into us. It doesn't just become about an audience with myself and what I feel about myself. Oh, I feel like maybe I'm that or I'm maybe not that. It's way more profound when somebody else says, actually, I do see that in your life. And this is really good because I see this, and it's a challenge maybe sometimes because you're a bit like that. It's hard, but it's shaped me more profoundly than just doing it on my own. We grow best in family. Peter's signing off. And as he does so, he says that until he comes, how you live matters. How you see God's view of the end of the world and all that's going to happen in the time that is ahead, it matters for how you live now. You have some ways to live. And in summary, you should live guarded. You should live guarded. And you should live growing. Today we're talking about growing. And in his book, reappearing church, uh, Mark Sayers uh, speaks about dead orthodoxy, okay, and he's talking about kind of the way in which the church changes in different times and different seasons uh, through church history, and at one point he talks about dead orthodoxy, and this is what he said, he explains that dead orthodoxy is when we believe all the right things about what Jesus says and does, about the world and about our lives and about our purpose, and this is important, right? About, about living until he comes, believing all the right things about what Jesus says, right? We should believe that, okay? Because Peter is asking us in verse 11, what kind of people ought you to be? Until he comes, what sort of people ought you to be? And I ask it again today because dead orthodoxy eventually begins to show on our lives when it becomes apparent that the gap between what we believe and what we experience isn't getting closer, it's getting wider apart. The gap between what we believe, what we expect, and what we experience, they're not getting closer. They're getting further apart. And growth in our lives, as we begin to live guarded and as we begin to grow, as we begin to feed the things that we should feed and starve the things that we should starve, as we begin to live in family, as we begin to run through that kind of progression in our lives so that it becomes we in God and through Christ and the Holy Spirit, right? As that, we begin to get to that picture, then all of a sudden, our expectations begin to line up with our experience. And a little while after that, we start to, if we don't do this, okay, if we, if we live to stay where we are, right, if we begin to be kind of happy with the fact that our expectations and our experience don't line up, right, if we just become okay with that, what happens? Well, we can't change God's word, right? Because otherwise that would distort it, right? So we can't read things like the story of the early church in Acts and go, nah, it didn't really happen, can we? So we read it and we go, well, no, it did happen and I can't take that away. We can't take away the experience of church history where lots of things, incredible things have happened in the history of the church. We can't delete those things. So what gives? Our expectations do, don't they? Our expectations do. And we reduce them and reduce what we believe because we believe it, so we reduce our expectations. And a little while after that, we start to live in a posture of defeat. It's what I see so often in the denomination that we're a part of. We just live in a posture of defeat. We're okay with decline. We become about best managing decline and not about growth. Peter says grow. He doesn't say manage decline. He says grow. He says, grow. Don't become worried and anxious and exhausted by the world that we live in. 
Don't become somebody whose life is just about holding on, just holding on, just clinging on. Don't forget how to grow. Until he comes, we need to live guarded and we need to live growing. One of the things that we need for that is the presence of God. We need the presence of God. And just as we come to worship and uh, to respond this morning, um, I really think that, that the Holy Spirit has been speaking about a couple of things today. And I think the first one is inconsistency. I think as we're looking around and we're taking a look at our lives, you know, as we're asking ourselves, if that's growth, how am I doing? I think we can all identify parts of our lives where we're saying, yeah, I'm inconsistent there. I say I believe this, but actually I'm living like that. I say I believe this, but actually I've come to just expect that God doesn't do that sort of stuff anymore. Certainly doesn't do it in my life. And there's inconsistency there. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to do something with that today. I think he wants to minister to that today. And Secondly, I think to growing. I think this is a reminder in our lives that the expectation is growth. The expectation isn't managed decline. The expectation isn't just level living, right? That's not what Peter is saying. The expectation of our lives is that we should grow for all of our lives. No matter what our age, no matter what our experience, no matter what our background, no matter the moment that we're in, the expectation is that our lives, we should be growing in our walk with Jesus as we try to live in his way. That's what Peter signs off with at the end of this book.